all bad things. Tragedy. Tragedies, disasters. That's bad things. Trigger warning for everything possible. What? Ahoy. <laughs> is that a hint? Possibly. Possibly. I'm Rachel. And I'm David. And this is All Bad Things. Speaking of ahoy, mm-hmm. when the uh, when the telephone was invented, I, mm-hmm. might, I may have mentioned this before, there was a debate did, but... between how to answer the phone. Would it be, <laughs> would it be hello or, or ahoy? And if it had been ahoy, then nobody would have thought differently. That's true. <laughs> that's true. No one would have been like, that's By the time say. we were born, it would have been like, oh, ahoy. ahoy. That's, that's just what you say. Ahoy. Thank you for calling. <laughs> That'd be so funny. <laughs> we could just start that. Nobody yeah. answers the phone anymore, no. so it doesn't no, they matter. Don't. But. It's just like, if, if you don't know who it is, then you just don't answer. <laughs> You're just like, I'll just let that go to voicemail. I actually, I, I had to call a couple clients today because they were not responding to their emails over like several weeks. And I left the messages, and I literally in both was like, you don't have to call me back. You can email me. Just email me. I just need to hear back. And one person did call back and leave a long-winded voicemail. And she was like, I know you said I didn't have to call you. I'm like, well, why did you then? I didn't want to hear from you. Oh, I think we're very hot here. Are we pitching? Uh, clipping. Clipping, sorry. This is uh, what you all get when... You listen to a show that doesn't edit. <laughs> For the most part. <laughs> we trim edges. That's just about it. Anyway, follow us Insta, Twitter, Facebook at All Bad Things Pod. Email us allbadthingspod at gmail.com. Especially for suggestions. That is the most helpful. Otherwise, I just take a screenshot. Like if you put it in a comment on one of the social media platforms or something or message me, I just like take a screenshot and forget generally. Because my phone has many, many pictures. Mostly of cats. Yes, mostly the cats. cats. Yes. Yes, specifically our cats. It would be weird if we collected pictures of other Other people's cats. (laughs) I like seeing pictures of any cats, but I don't collect those pictures. That would be creepy. Um, (laughs) And anything you... Oh, what are you drinking tonight? I am drinking Michelob Ultra Lime and Prickly Pear. Back to... It was back in stock. I found it again. Yeah. Except this time I found it in a 12-pack instead of... (laughs) Was it in the Sheets Beer Cave? It was. Okay, so they stocked up. Yes, they did, finally. Very good. I'm back to Raleigh Brewing. I got two six-packs last week, so this is the other. I think I had the first squeeze last week. This is the Bell Tower. It's a Berliner Weisse, which took some getting used to. It's very biting. Mm -hmm. After you try it? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Not bad at all. Yeah, once you, like you get used to the, it is. Uh, it's not. It's it's I think pretty. It's technically a sour beer. Yeah, it's kind of bitter. Yeah. It is a little. Anyway, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it's also pretty light, which is kind of nice. And that was all bad beer corner. <laughs> all bad, not, all bad things beer corner. There you go. The beer itself is not not bad. bad. No, no, no. Not even the prickly pear. No. Oh, can I try your prickly sure. pear? Prickly pear. Yes, it's delicious. Kind of on the sweet side, though. Oh, it is very sweet. Mm-hmm. It is good, though. Yeah. It, but it is very sweet. Yes. 
I do like the prickly pear flavor in there, though. That's nice. Yeah, there was that um, soda, that prickly pear yeah. soda that I got here or there. World Market? World Market, I yeah. think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was really good. Yep. I should go there again and get some more. I'm sure they, <laughs> yeah. sure they still have it. Yeah, probably. Probably. Um, any announcements? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> any, anything going on anything recently? Like, no. no. Just, you know, just pretty. Oh, um, congratulations, New Zealand, for basically kicking COVID's ass and having zero cases. Okay, Which so the official. Yep, they they officially. So the one person left died. I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I kind of think they recovered, they recovered, but I guess I don't know for sure. But they definitely don't have any active cases anymore. Official active cases. So Jacinda Ardern is fucking awesome. The New Zealand people are great because that means everybody cooperated. It does help that they're on an island. Doesn't There's a hurt. Little, little bit of a, or it could really hurt. There could be no way to get off in in a, in oh, a pandemic. It, uh, right, yeah. then it would get to everybody. Yeah, it, yeah, just, that's it depends true. on what uh, side of it you're on. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's uh, that's fantastic, and it just so happens <laughs> that it times out well because this week's topic was suggested by loyal Kiwi listener, oh. loyal New Zealand listener, Stephen. Mm. Um, so that's hint number one, because it happens to take place near him. And then I have a really terrible second hint. Okay. Um, it, it comes from, when you think of Australian band, who do you think of? Or what song do you think of? An Australian band? Uh-huh. Well, the easy answer would be ACDC, but I have, oh, I have no. a, I have a second one. What? Silver chair. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, it's neither of those. Who's well, like who could it be? Stereotypical. Who can it be? Now? Oh, is it really them? Uh, what the hell was not? Is it Mike? The Men, men at Work. work. The Although me- I think maybe that was Mike and the Mechanics. No, 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 no. No, was it Men no, at Work? That okay. was Men at Work. Well, what is like basically their most famous song? It was that song you just sang. Well, wasn't who it? can it be now? But then also. Do you come from? Oh, now, yeah, now? that's right. They did sing that too. Yes. Um, and so here's the horrible second <laughs> hint, which is, can't you hear? Can't you hear the thunder? You better run. You better take cover. cover. Whoa. <laughs> Do you know that they got sued for using the tune Kookaburra? Do you know that that tune? Did you ever have to learn it on recorder as a kid or anything? And like, or, did, it, did anybody have yes, to learn recorder as a kid? Of course, that's what they teach you in school. You did not learn. You did not learn uh, recorder. Uh, no. That's how they teach kids music. Yeah, no. is recorder. I guess that's not how they you, taught so us. You cannot play recorder. No, I've never. I'm shocked. Tried. I don't think. <laughs> it's basically like the world's easiest instrument. Jesse. At least it's the pictures. It's the pictures. We'll get to them later. Why is he digging at them? I don't know. That is... Stop, stop it. <laughs> are you getting feisty? What are you doing? He is. Yes, he is. He's hey, getting bitey. We have both cats in here. Hey, hey, not on the... He's going to start eating. Okay. Oh. oh, my God, I was going to say, me. don't take that away from him. He's going to... Well, mm. he he dug and he yeah. pulled. Oh my god, that was a wicked. That was a live injury, everybody. That was a live cat injury. 
uh, meaning the cat gave me the injury, but like yeah, he got pretty good. Pull Jesse Pinkman, how dare you? All right, anyway. <laughs> Ouch, and... There you go. <laughs> Thank you. Stop the bleeding. Um, <laughs> oh, so, where was I? We're Mike and the Mechanics. So, yes. Oh, Kookaburra. Okay. Kookaburra sits in the old gum tree. Merry, merry king of the bushes. He... I don't, I don't know. Love, Kookaburra, love. Kookaburra, gay, your life must be. Ha, ha, ha. Moving on. Okay. <laughs> It's also used to teach kids that you can sing in the round, you know, like row, row, row your boat, jet, and then row, 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 like people. Sure. Okay. Okay. Ah, <laughs> uh, all right. Anyway, I guess that's the two most interesting things in the world: recorder and kookaburra. <laughs> Let's dive into it. Okay. <laughs> is it is this somebody who uh, was stranded out on a boat while he was playing recorder of, of kookaburra? No, but you got one element of that guess oh, correct. Oh, stranded. No. Boat? Yes. Okay. Okay. So this is the story of the 1998 Sydney to Hobart yacht race. Okay. All right. So on December 27th, 1998, on the second day of the annual Sydney to Hobart yacht race, a storm caused mass chaos that required the rescue of 55 sailors and led to the deaths of six. Jesus. And the total loss of five yachts. Wow. So six people died in this in this race. Bad weather in a race. Sure. Long story short, right? Um, so primary sources were a, a huge bulk of it was from the Sydney Morning Herald, a little from the New York Times, the Cruising Yacht Club of Australia, National Geographic, the Australian National Maritime Museum, uh, ABC News Australia, the website Equipped to Survive, which had the coroner's inquest in f- or um, report in full, which I got a lot of information from, uh, the Examiner, a daily newspaper out of Tasmania, the Australian Institute for Disaster Resilience, and then a little from Wikipedia, though actually the Wikipedia article's relatively short, so I got a lot of information from a lot of other sor- those other sources. So, uh, it's been a while since we've covered a yacht race. Do you remember when we did... We did the the one that uh, essentially a hurricane happened in the middle the, of it. The dolphin, yes. yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, this is very similar in that bad weather during a yacht race. Mm-hmm. Um, we did the trash man Oh, that's right, too. Yeah, that's more right. More recently, but that was not a race. Mm-mm. That was just the transportation of a yacht. Or, or yeah, it was a yacht, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Uh, let's get back into the wonderful, wacky, tacky world of yacht racing. <laughs> I'm not going to go into the details of, like, yachts, because we did that in the Dolphin mm-hmm. disaster. So uh, so this particular race, the Sydney to Hobart, takes place, unsurprisingly, and I set it all up, in Australia. Between the towns of Sydney and New South Wales, to south to Hobart, uh, which is in Tasmania. Uh, do you know what Tasmania is? It's like a state or a province, right? It's a little island. Yeah. Yeah. I believe it is part of Australia, but it is just south of uh, mainland Australia on the west side. I see. So uh, the route is a relatively straight shot, but I want to name the towns that it passes by on the coast because the the names of the towns are so charming and fun. (laughs) So, okay. So we start in Sydney. Okay. We go to Wollongong, 
Like it. Jervis Bay, Bateman's Bay, Maruya, Narumba, Naruma, Bega, Marimbula, Eden, which is the most boring name on here, uh, Malakuta, Kapow, and then into, well, across the, ba- the Bass Strait, part of the Tasman Sea, and then into near Port Arthur, into Hobart. Hmm. Interesting. And you can see it kind of, so it's pretty much a straight south with a little bit of a westward bend route, but then there's like a little hook mm-hmm. in for the, to get to the port. Hmm. So, um, after crossing the Tasman Sea by, okay, I already, I already said all that. Never mind. Uh, so the total route is, the official route is 628 nautical miles which is 1,163 kilometers or 722 miles. It's a long fucking It's a long race. haul. It's a long haul. Um, now, there is some variation, like if you look up the race in the reported distance, and that's because like people can take slightly different routes. Sure. So that can add a little bit of, of length. Um, but that distance was per the organizers, the current organizers. So uh, the first Sydney to Hobart race took place in 1945, like literally right after World War II, and was hosted by the Cruising Yacht Club of Australia, the CYCA, uh, which was formed just the year before, near the t- near-ish the tail end of World War II, so it was in 90, 1944 that they were um, uh, forming, and it was initially just, caused, just called the Cruising Yacht Club, then they added, of Australia, mm-hmm. uh, in '46. So the inaugural inaugural race in 1945 was originally just planned as a cruise, not to be a race, but then an English captain named John Illingworth gave a presentation to the club, heard of their plans, and he reportedly famously said, quote, why don't we make a race of it? End quote. So basically, we can't just have fun. Yeah. Let's make it competitive. So... The cruise turned into a race with the Royal Yacht Club of Tasmania agreeing to host the finish line. So the first race started on Boxing Day, December 26th, 1945. Still not completely clear on Boxing Day. Yeah. It's not an American thing, but it's a it's Canada a celebrates it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, many places do. Mm-hmm. Or it's a bank holiday in places and such. And the first race consisted of a fleet. <laughs> I literally wrote pack at first, but a bunch of ships. <laughs> a pack is of not, yachts. It's <laughs> not a pack. It's a fleet. A pack of yachts. It's like a murder of yachts, right? <laughs> um, it consisted of nine ships, in, including Illingworth's own ship, Rainey, which he was captaining, and then several newbies to yacht racing or ocean racing specifically. And even in the first race, they saw some trouble, or they experienced some issues. Bad winds forced many of the yachts to take shelter and waited out, and two of the ships went missing for four days. Jesus. But everyone was found safe in the end, even if it did take a while. So the last place finisher took 11 days to reach the finish line. I mean, that... Yeah. And that's still the record slowest time of the race, although reportedly the reason was that the captain stopped for a while at Port Arthur near Hobart to eat, eat roast pork and crayfish. Hey, you gotta He's do what like, you gotta do. You know what? Let's just wait this out a He's little bit. He's like, I'm not winning any money anyways. Like, right. this is a gentleman's agreement. Right. 
Might as well have some crawfish and pork. Mm-hmm. And Illingsworth, I is it Illingworth or Illingsworth? I think it is Illingsworth. Uh, he won the race at six days, 14 hours. So still, still almost, a long almost time. a week. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is over 700 miles. Mm-hmm. And this, these are 1945 yachts, not modern day yachts. We'll talk a little bit more about the time as time went on. But um, So despite this inauspicious start, the race has been run every year since. It was run last year and it has been announced for this year as well. Which, to be fair, aside from the cruise, which is very close quarters, as a spectator sport, it, it's very conducive to social distancing. If you sure. Think about, you know? Yes. <laughs> Just to stand, everyone stands six feet apart outside to watch the boats, you know. Um. So now, interestingly, last year's race actually had a little bit of issues. There, you know, they have. Um, like, it's not just the race. The race has become the main event, but they'll have, like, little oh, events sure. leading yeah, up to it, absolutely. like, make a week of it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and they actually had to, in 2019, so this was just, like, six months ago, they had to cancel some of those lead-up events because of the bushfires causing oh, sure. poor vi- visibility in Sydney. So Yeah, everybody kind of suddenly forgot about those, too. I know, I mean- like, now, right? Yeah. And California, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there are still some issues there so yeah it's hard to know what to focus on right now there's a lot going on but i i saw the uh i've been seeing this meme go around lately it's kind of funny it's the um marty and back to the future getting in the car and doc mm-hmm. just telling him whatever you do don't go to 2020 <laughs> no kidding no kidding i remember when everyone was all like uh i feel like i said this before but anyway everyone uh at the you know turn of this year was saying, oh, 2020 vision, everything's going to be clear, and this is the time. To, I was like, yeah. Well, things are becoming clear. Oh, yes. But just not in the way we thought. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's a very different clarity we're achieving here. Yes. Um, the race is currently sponsored by Rolex. <laughs> it's sure. Not like it's going to be... <laughs> Well, plus it's not, it's a luxury, right? It's not. Yeah, it's all, it's yachts. McDonald's brings you, you know. Well, they've, probably somebody's got a McDonald's patch somewhere on there. Right. Well, a lot of the yachts are sponsored too. Yeah, it'd be, but of course it'd be, um, not Rolex. What did you say? It is Rolex. Oh, Rolex. Okay. I was Mm -hmm. thinking Tag Heuer for some reason. uh, But they probably sponsor a yacht too. Probably. uh, It'd be Mm -hmm. like JP Morgan uh, (laughs) investment Uh firms and things like that. So the official current name of the race is the Rolex Sydney to Hobart Yacht, Yacht Race. Sure. Although apparently, like, the knowing racers call it just the Hobart. Sure. Because Sydney to Hobart Yacht Race is long. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, like we've been doing this since 1945. Like, we, we, we can slim it down. People still know what we're talking about. Right. Um, also, you can, if you want to, listen to their new official podcast. Hosted by Gordon Bray, who is an Australian sports journalist, and the title of the podcast is Imaginatively Rolex Sydney Hobart Yacht Race Podcast. (laughs) How about it? So, yeah, you can look it up if you want. So part of what makes this race particularly challenging is the fact that the route runs through the Bass Strait, so the portion of the Tasman Sea that runs between the Australian mainland and Tasmania. And in the parlance of the race, this portion is nicknamed the paddock. 
And this area, here's something fun. This area is sometimes referred to as the Bass Strait Triangle, a la the Bermuda oh, Triangle, okay. because some a lot of weird shit happens. Shit has happened there, yes. So dating back to 1920, quite a number of aircraft have just gone missing while flying over the area. Sounds very much like the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah. And then in 1978, a man named Frederick Valentich, 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 one of those, Tish. Uh, was flying over the Bass Strait when he told Melbourne Air Traffic Control that something that was, what he said was not an aircraft. He's like, something is above me. It's fucking Godzilla. Um, and then he disappeared and has never been found. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I, I was only fucking so, joking. No, no, no. It's like Well, maybe it was UFO. Godzilla. It, that that's well. Hey, UFOs exist. It's it's official. The, who was it? Who confirmed that? The U.S. Navy. The Navy. Okay, yeah. yeah, with those uh, the videos that yeah. they released of literal unidentified like, flying. It's objects. like now that the world's gone to hell, let's just slide this into the news where nobody's going to even notice. It was not the craziest news story. <laughs> Nobody even that's noticed. Right. Yeah, I know. I'm like, okay. Well, I think part of it is like we all kind it's of. It's just like yeah, we already weird shits out there somewhere, but. Yeah. And Godzilla exists. <laughs> so, uh, at any rate, back on Earth, the strait is definitely treacherous by sheer virtue of its geography. So, it's overall relatively shallow, considering it's a portion of the ocean. It has an average depth of 50 meters or 160 feet. I mean, it's not shallow if you're <laughs> jumping in it, but. But uh, considering. It's part that's, of the ocean, yeah. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. shallow. And the winds and currents that can kick up can cause major swells, resulting in dangerous boating conditions. So, because of how shallow yeah, it is. Yeah, mm-hmm, exactly. Several ships have met their demise in Bass Strait, dating back to the late 18th century, and several have gone missing completely without their wreckage being found. Though generally farther, like this was back like in the 19th century, recovery operations, rescue operations were not what they are today. I don't think they even really existed. I yeah, think you right? Were, I think you were kind of on your own back Probably then. Probably a little bit. There might um, have been ships going on the same, you know, uh, route routes, and everything. Yeah. But uh, no, there was no, nobody was coming to get you. Yeah. <laughs> so this challenging leg is part of what makes the, ro- the race so attractive to adventurous yacht racers and I guess if you're not adventurous, why are you racing a yacht in the first place? Because I think that's kind of the whole point. I could be wrong. I have no idea. I've never been aboard a yacht. I think the biggest boat I've ever been on is uh, uh, your stepdad's. Oh, okay. Yeah. And that's not a large boat at no. all. <laughs> it's just a, little, it's it's a pontoon. pontoon. Boat. Yeah, yeah, a little pontoon. I've been on my bandmate's uh, pontoon boat, too. Oh no, I've been on a cruise ship. That's silly. I have been on a larger boat, but that's pretty not big. a that's that's some a different That's something different. Yeah, that's that's a different uh, category. Now there's also the stunning vistas that have resulted in some truly amazing photographs, both amateur and professional, that I have for your purview. This is during the race. Actually both of these are are during the race. Wow. It's supposed that's gorgeous. to be beautiful. Yeah. yeah. This is a very dramatic photo. This is like in a museum, literally. This Holy photo. shit! That's a boat. <laughs> it looks like clouds. Look, it looks like a wave. No, 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 <laughs> no. I was gonna say it looks like a fucking Independence Day. That's oh what, yeah, a <laughs> it looks bit. like one of the ships coming. It's like a canopy cloud. Like, that's yeah. That is really cool. Mushroom cloud, yeah. 
or scary. It's probably scary if you're in it's that. Scary uh, if you're that, that person in that <laughs> in that little sail under that little Holy sail. Holy yeah. shit! Yeah, but yeah, it does look like a huge wave, but it is clouds. It is clouds, yeah. Because mm-hmm. you can tell because mm-hmm. it's just a shadow underneath, yeah. That's crazy. Holy mm-hmm. shit. Yeah, I'd shit my pants if I ever saw that. <laughs> oh, I also don't think I've ever mentioned that I do, in general, put up pictures, most of the pictures that yeah. we mention on, on Instagram Insta. and on Facebook. So you can follow us there. Oh, and you can join our discussion group, too, always. All right. Just answer the damn question. Just right. answer the question. With something not, like... Spammy, please. Like, at least say something legitimate. Anyway. So, nevertheless, the treachery of the race did concern some people. So, in December of 1981, also something to keep in mind. I know I say this like I'm talking to a bunch of idiots, but it's mostly just to remind myself. This race takes place in December in the Southern Hemisphere. In other words, it takes place in the middle of summer. Not for summer them. for us, yeah. summer for uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, but yeah, in the Southern. So anyway, in December of 1981, the Ocean Racing Club of Victoria held a dinner attended by multiple well-known and well-respected yachtsmen, uh, hosted at the home of Sid Fisher, a notable sailor himself. And there were several speakers at the dinner, including a man named Alan Payne, who was a noted and revered English-born naval architect. So he designed ships, like the this type of ship, too. Payne's speech, however, wasn't what one might expect at, at like a little, oh, let's all be rich and race yachts and be happy about our adventures sort of little dinner. Uh, instead, in his After dinner speech, he expressed concerns about racing through the Bass Strait, which he said he didn't want to bring up to the general public, and so he was mentioning it in the company of these yachtsmen. Specifically, he brought up the possibility of rogue waves, uh, which could be devastating to a fleet of ships racing through the strait. He said, you'd have to do a thousand Hobart races to be sure of seeing one, you don't you don't need to worry but or sorry he said <laughs> this is actually a quote i should probably say it correctly quote you would have to do 1000 hobart races to be sure of seeing one you you need <laughs> you needn't worry but the administrators must sure so sort of saying like the organizers have to watch out for this because this is a treacherous part Could of happen. water mm-hmm. He warned further that he had done some calculations and estimates, and he guessed that at some point, at some race in the future, quote, three boats, three meaning boats, will completely disappear. There will be numerous capsizes and dismastings and injuries. Six people will be lost overboard. Oh, End wow. quote. Do you remember what I said yes, the death toll was in the yes. beginning? But, I mean, that's, I mean, you're dealing with the ocean. Uh, I'm not saying he was some sort of like clairvoyant. Right. It just is one of those spooky. It's probability. You Mm -hmm. know, the the more you go out on it, the Mm -hmm. the the chances that something bad is going to happen. He was actually wrong about the ships. There are five that were destroyed. Um, None actually quote disappeared. I don't think. I think they were just destroyed. I actually listened to uh, one of the channels that I watched, the SB Nation. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had this announcer on that called um, when this hitter was going to hit a home run it was only a second career appearance okay what when he was going to hit a home run who was going to hit it off what the pitch count was going to be and where he would hit it and he actually when did he predict it, it before his he, career he, started he, he, no he predicted it in the pregame oh okay oh, he's, the game he's like happened. uh yes 
the guy that hit it was a quarterback in college, but he was also a baseball player, and he was playing with Colorado, I believe. And okay. He was just like, I think he's going to do this. So he was just this, off, like, hey, I think. Two. Wow. Got it down to <laughs> everything. The count. The That's everything. so funny. I wonder if that was like a, where all the bookies are like, hey. Well, he was just like, well, the guy narrating the video was like, now it'd be one thing to predict this if Barry Bonds was at the plate. Yeah. Like, but this is some no-named just player, rookie, player. in his second game ever, his mm-hmm. second career appearance, and he gets everything down to detail. To, and it was just like, it's like, wow. Pretty remarkable. It's yeah. like, I hope he played the lottery next. <laughs> well, a good, educated guess. You, you're going to get right every once in a while. So, yeah. So, during this dinner and during Alan Payne's speech, there was a man named John Stanley in the audience, or as one of the attendees. 17 years later, he would recount those words Mm. to police. Mm. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about the 98 race. So, the 1998 race was the 54th annual Sydney to Hobart. It started without incident at noon local time on Boxing Day, which was a Saturday that year, December 26th, with 115 yachts participating. So it had grown a lot Mm -hmm. over the years, right? From 9 to 115. The weather conditions were good. Hot, sunny, favorable currents and winds. And it was looking like, because the winds were strong, that that's good when you're trying to get speed up. Sure. So they were thinking like, hey, we might be looking at some record-breaking finishes here. Uh, the 1997 winner, just for reference, the, so the year before, had a time of just under three days, which is sure. a far cry from oh, the almost yeah. week finish. Well, yeah, you know? technology and, and now, technology and stuff. And now it's like barely over a day yeah. that it takes people. Like, it, And also, yes, technology, the design of the boats, a whole lot of things, yeah, contributing to that. But even though everything was looking good, there were also forecasts of high winds further south in the notorious Bass Strait that made some navigators concerned. And those winds quickly began to develop into an East Coast low. Hmm. So... An East Coast low is an extra tropical cyclone that occurs, um, and in this case, it was occurring off of Australia, not entirely uncommon. So basically, an extra tropical cyclone is a low-pressure system that occurs in areas not typically associated with hurricanes. So there was a, um, I saw one chart that kind of like shadowed like a stripe across a a global map. a stripe kind of across, if you imagine like where the U.S. is, and then so the stripe was covering that and then all the way east out of there. Then there was like a a blank space where there was no dark stripe in the middle, and then there was another dark stripe. So the idea being the middle near the equator is where hurricanes happen. Sure. Tropical cyclones, not extra tropical cyclones. So... Um, so they're, they're, it's it's similar to hurricanes they or tropical storms. They're just not actually happening in the tropics. Um, but they do move in a, a circular manner. Sure. I was going to say clockwise or counterclockwise, but it depends on where they're occurring, right? North or, or South Hemisphere. Um, <clears throat> so that's why it's called a cyclone. But basically, I just wanted to clarify that we're not technically talking about a hurricane, though the winds can get up to hurricane force sure um and can cause massive damage so apparently and i 
it was so long ago, I have no idea if I mentioned this, but apparently the Edmund Fitzgerald was wrecked by an extratropical cyclone. So I don't, I don't remember if you mentioned that either. Nope. <laughs> no clue. It was so long ago. That was an early one. That was an early That was episode. like one of our first 20 or I something like that. it may have been, yeah. So in this particular East Coast low, there was warm air approaching Tasmania, like moving from the northeast to the southwest. That meant cold air moving in the opposite direction. And that converged with a strong clockwise moving jet stream. And so that is what twisted it all into a cyclone, basically. Sure. And the two, uh, the hot and cold air converging is what led to the storm itself. So because of the favorable high winds, the first vessels reached the strait within 24 hours. So like within a day, they were already past um, Australia, base, or, or the mainland Australia, and getting into the Bass Strait. And so this was December 27th. And as the ships approached the strait, they could see lightning up ahead mm, and the temperature good. and barometric pressure were dropping noticeably mm. mm-hmm. the weather worsened peaking around like early afternoon when re- winds started to reach 60 plus knots mm. so that's for a translation almost 70 miles per hour or 113 kilometers per hour so for reference, that is just under or just at the wind speed of a Category 1 hurricane. So we're talking that's, basically That's fucking force. heavy wind. Mm-hmm. And these are small ships. These are not like No, freighters. they're not liners. No. These are yachts. <laughs> these, I think the, um, yeah, the, the size of these ships, they ranged between 33, 33 feet or 10 meters long and 79 feet or 24 meters long. In terms of ships, yeah, we're that's not small. talking cruise ships. Yeah. Or, no, these to go are, to go up against something that's blowing at uh, sixty nautical uh, mm-hmm. miles mm-hmm. per hour. Jesus, no yeah. thanks. Um. So now, official records actually recorded uh, gusts of seventy to seventy-five. Knots. Sure. So it it really what? Yeah, was. we're talking about sustained winds of sixty. <clears throat> right. Mm-hmm. That's which is mm-hmm. the gusts are always worse. Right. Worse. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so Mike Marshman, a crew member aboard the ship, the stand aside, recounted how the crew weren't even able to verbally communicate because in his words, the wind, quote, blows your voice away. I'm sure. He was like, we couldn't even stand next to each other and talk because they're the noise and the wind. So they had to like try to use hand signals to communicate. Um, and I do have a picture. Mm, my picture. Okay. There we go. Um, oh, sorry, that's gonna be later. Okay. <laughs> I should have waited for my spoiler little alert. Cue. <laughs> yes, a spoiler alert to the stand aside. Yeah. So aboard one of the ships, the Midnight Rambler, the crew was forced to right their vessel multiple times after it was like basically knocked completely out of 45 degree angle um here and there there are pictures of these ships fighting so here's one that is the midnight rambler look at those seas yeah that would not be fun at all wicked wicked jesus um so the work 
to just keep the these ships upright was treacherous. That'd be, one of the, that'd be one of the scariest fucking things to ever go through. Oh, absolutely. And it was also physically exhausting. This mm-hmm. is like physical, yeah. like pulling and Well, you can see in, the, in this picture, yes, because two guys, a, they're uh, on the outside of the mm-hmm. edge of the boat. Yeah, because he's of, like sitting on it, mm-hmm. yeah, to try and ride it again. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so, then you have to ride it, but you can't let it You can't let it go too, yeah. It's, good luck with that. Yeah. But um, man, but man, your adrenaline is pumping so hard. Like you're, if you get out of survival, it, right? So. And if you get out of it, then you're going to be exhausted. Mm-hmm. Like you, but you hope to get out of it. Yeah. Jesus. Uh, the Rambler was lucky because the crew was actually very experienced, not just at sailing in general, but sailing in this actual race. The captain of the Rambler, Ed Saltis, who was then 37 years old, later told the Sydney Morning Herald that quote. The noise was possibly the scariest part of the whole thing. Sure. A constant scream through the rigging, through the sails, and through yourselves, through yourself. The sound of the spray hitting the side of the hull was like somebody standing with a machine gun firing bullets into the boat. It's something I don't want to experience again. End quote. Mm. Yeah, that's that is terrifying. So the fierce winds kicked up massive, deadly waves. Saltus uh, recalls waves as high as what, now this is, these were not, like, there was nobody with a measuring tape out well, there sure. measuring waves. These, so these are all um, estimates from observers. Uh, he estimated that the waves that he was seeing were as high as maybe 60 feet. Jesus. That's, That's fucking... Six stories. God. <laughs> uh, That's like my building coming after me. Yeah, that you worked in. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. that's fucking crazy. This this freaks me out. He said at multiple points the ship would quote sail straight into thin air and fall about thirty. Oh god, feet. yeah, fuck yeah, because they're cutting right through a wave. Mm-hmm. Oh god, he also yeah. said the bang when you hit the water was incredible. <sighs> it was more like hitting a block of cement than water. Oh quote. god, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, it's- I, and I'm surprised you can even hang on. And just, I yeah, mean, just- I know. So, like I said, it was difficult to say exactly how high the waves were, but reports were that there were waves potentially as high as 85 feet or 26 meters. Yeah. There were definitely, I read that, like, consistent waves uh, 10 to 12 meters. So that's, like, what, 30? That's 36 feet. I mean, that's that's nothing to play with either. A Mm -hmm. a 20-foot wave is nothing to play with. A 10-foot wave. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've been on the wrong side of some of those, but Ugh. God, I've never gone up against something that's. Fuck that. No mm-hmm. way. And I just wanted to add this part because I thought it was great and probably very representative of what just about everyone sailing in this race going through this was probably thinking at the time. So Saltus said, quote, I remember thinking, how the fuck did we ever get ourselves into this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, how did this happen? What the like, fuck are we is doing? Is it really is worth this it? Is really happening? Yeah. I imagine it feels very just like, excuse me, what? What is going on? Uh, excuse like, me, nature. <clears throat> right? They wanted na- they wanted um adventure, but not this. They didn't want this. Adventure. Nobody no. wants this unless no. you're fucking crazy. Right. So experienced or not, as far as the crew goes, the weather conditions were obviously extremely dangerous. Sailors in multiple yachts quite literally hung on for dear life. In one particularly harrowing experience, the crew of the Winston Churchill had to abandon ship into two life rafts. So here I have a picture of the Winston Churchill as it left 
for the race. So this is what that this ship that we're about to hear this story from okay. happened to. Hmm. It's not going to go well. Spoiler alert. Uh, yeah. So the Churchill was notable for also being one of the original ships in the fleet that sailed in the inaugural race in 1945. Wow. This was an old ship. Okay. Obviously kept up. But... Well, sure. So the crew had to abandon ship into two life rafts, like rubber life rafts, right? So one of the life rafts was occupied by five of the crew members, not including the captain. He ended up on a, on a different raft. Now, this raft with the five crew members capsized by a wave and trapped all of the crew, the five people under it. Oh, so they sure. could breathe yeah. because it was they were trapped in like an air bubble. Right. But they started panicking pretty quick because they're like, we are going to run out of air damn fast. So they were forced to cut a small hole in the bottom, which was now the top, right, of this life raft so that they could let fresh air in and oxygen in then another wave came by flipped it over again so now it was right side up but because they had cut a hole in the bottom they were basically holding on to like a rubber sheet Mm -hmm. um and when this happened two of the crewmen managed to hang on to basically like the remains of the raft and the other three were swept out to sea Mm. And it's hard to track time in this disaster, like how this oh, all elapsed. Sure. Most of the issues were on the 27th, but um, this was leading into the 28th. So it probably happened like early morning hours of the 28th from what I could gather. And it quickly became how dire the situation, it quickly became clear how dire the situation was for the dozens of yachts in the Bass Strait. A massive search and rescue mission was soon coordinated, involving cooperation between both government agencies, such as the Royal Australian Navy, and civilian personnel. And here is the, what was this, the straight ahead? Is that what I called it? The, well, whatever that ship was. (laughs) Ah, steady, stand aside. Oh, okay. It was not that at all. And I think you can actually see it on this picture, like the name of the boat. The stand aside. This is the stand aside in distress and needing. Jesus. Help. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yep. So this uh, rescue effort consisted of 35 aircraft, both military and civilian, and 27 Royal Navy vessels, Royal Australian Navy vessels. And this uh, this rescue effort remains the largest peacetime rescue operation in Australian history. Uh, and it lasted for days. I oh, I'm sure. Uh, and the, but it didn't it. They didn't wait for the weather to die down to start like they were flying into some really treacherous weather. So like aircraft were deploying in these hurricane mm-hmm. force winds. Right. Um, Which the Coast Guard will do. Well, their version of the Coast Guard. The, the Royal Australian yeah. Navy. So one, uh, Royal, the Royal Australian Navy is RAN. So one of the RAN's helicopters, the Tiger 75, responded to a call that spotted John Gibson and John Stanley, who had been there in the dinner where uh, Alan Payne mentioned oh, the Oh, yes, yeah. okay. Those were the two survivors mm. hanging on to the rubber raft from the Churchill. Uh, the seas were still incredibly rough. 
And in the words of Shane Pashley, a Navy crewman who was aboard the Tiger 75, he said, quote, one minute they would be 20 feet below us, and then one minute they'd be 50 feet below us and moving away from us. Mm -hmm. There wasn't really much for me to do except to go into the life raft and pick them out, end quote. So they... In an incredibly dramatic fashion, Pashley like was lowered down mm-hmm. on a winching cable to pull the guys out That's of crazy. the water. Yeah, and while they were being raised up out of the water, they were getting slammed. Oh, I'm by sure. Waves. Oh it's God, yeah. Just it's horrific. Um, here's the Tiger seventy five. Oh wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is a military. Yeah. Uh. Aircraft. It looks futuristic almost, and this well, is uh, and 22 years ago. Yeah, yeah, that's true. The huge rescue effort successfully saved the lives of an estimated 55 sailors. So it was a uh, awesome. <laughs> it was a good result. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, you're not going to get them all. Yeah. Well, despite this massive and largely successful mission, six unfortunate participants in the race died in the storm, hmm. just as Alan Payne had predicted predicted 17 years prior um and they were here are the people who died uh the three crewmen of the winston churchill who were swept out to sea uh john dean who's nicknamed deany uh he had two teenage sons and a wife of 21 years named penny when he died penny said his main hobby was sailing though he was also an avid skier Hmm. Jim Lawler, a longtime sailor and marine engineer, he left behind four kids and his wife, Denise, who was his high school sweetheart. Uh, Denise said of him, quote, I think sailing has probably been his greatest love, hmm. end quote. A, mo- a lot of this information I got from the actual coroner's hmm. inquest because they interviewed all the spouses sure. and people who knew them. Michael Bannister, a garbage collector and family man with at least one child. I couldn't quite pin down how many kids he had based on the interview I saw with his wife and and a wife of 19 years, Shirley. Shirley described him as, quote, one of nature's gentlemen. He was just a very honest, good-hearted guy, Hmm. end quote. So those were the three guys aboard the Winston Churchill. Also um, dying. So they all drowned, presumably, right? Um... Actually, I don't think, presumably, they did recover their... I believe they recovered all the bodies. Okay. So. Uh, then also 35-year-old Phil Skeggs, who was aboard the ship Business Post Nyad, I believe. N-A-I-A-D. Okay. Nyad. Anyway. Um, so he was a former Australian rules football player for the Collingwood FC. He was a locksmith by trade and a skilled sailor. Uh, he left behind his wife, Stephanie, and two little kids. They were like six and nine, I believe. Stephanie said about Phil, quote, he was very caring and would do anything for anyone. He was totally dedicated to me and the children, hmm. end quote. Also, 33-year-old Glenn Charles of the ship Sword of Orion. Um, and so Skeggs, uh, Phil Skeggs and Glenn Charles both drowned. Um, Glenn had represented England in the past in the Olympics for sailing. So this was an Olympic sailor. Um, And he was currently, at the time of his death, he was training for the 2000 Sydney Olympics, Hmm. which were going to be like 18 months after all this. Yeah, that's true. And the time of his death. His sister, Marion Charles, described him as, quote, a good bloke. He was Hmm. very modest, end quote. And I thought this was really sweet because this is something only a sister would say. Quote, 
he had big ears. I mean, they protruded from the side of his head. <laughs> and Chloe, it's just such a sister thing to say. Mm-hmm. At a coroner's and like, <laughs> to a coroner interviewing yeah, yeah, her. That's, that's him, all right. Big ears. But she also said, quote, he was very good looking. Hmm. And then the last victim was Bruce Raymond Guy, who was also aboard the Business Post Nyad, as Phil Skeggs was. He was the only person not to drown. He suffered a fatal heart attack oh, during the storm. Yeah, I'll bet. Uh, yeah, no kidding, right? <laughs> jeez. He was married to his wife, Rosalind, for 30 years, and they had a son named Mark. He worked... Yeah? What did you think, Jesse? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, he worked as a manager for a water main manufacturing company. He did struggle with high blood pressure and was, according to Rosalind, quote, under immense stress from work. End quote. But he didn't have any known heart issues still. Sure. I mean, if he was already kind of under stress and a little on edge and then this shit happens, like I can I can see your body just being like, what? No. And just freaking out. And there was the coroner's inquest did contain a lot more descriptors of one of the other crewmen aboard who did survive, um, who like describe that he was having convulsions. Like sure. the, it was it was a grim scene and I decided not to dig into yeah. that too much. But anyway. So of the one hundred fifteen yachts that started the race, forty four finished and five Jeez. were lost completely. The estimated total cost, obviously certainly not the prior the thing that makes them this a, a big tragedy. Obviously, it was a loss of life, but the estimated total cost of the lost yachts, damaged vessels, and the rescue efforts was thirty million Australian dollars. The so there's the, the race was technically completed because forty four yachts actually made it to the finish line, right? So there were official results, and this race has two separate. And I don't know if this is uh, I didn't even look a typical of yacht races. I assume so. But they had what they call the line honors winner, meaning the ship that actually crosses the finish line in the fastest time, and then the handicap winner. So I guess for um, races, for boats, because the boats varied in so much in size um, and were capable of different speeds. They would, much like golf, I guess, give handicaps, right? Because don't probably handicaps in golf? Mm -hmm. Okay. The idea meaning being to try and like, level the playing field right so they had so there's technically like two winners i guess so the um the line honors winner the literal first ship across the finish line was the u.s ship the sayonara and the handicap winner was the midnight rambler (sighs) that yeah had fought through wow like literally falling through the air Mm -hmm. and getting knocked over and having to write themselves again and their finish time was two days, 12 hours, 36 minutes, 23 seconds with the handicap. So. <laughs> and going through hell along yeah, the way. Yeah. Almost literally. Yeah. Uh-huh. So a coroner's inquest was undertaken by state coroner of New South Wales, John Abernethy. Most of the sailors were very reluctant to lay blame on anyone. Uh, Ed Saltis, so the the, ca- the winning captain, right, of the Midnight Rambler, he said, quote, in the end, the only person you can blame for 1998 is God. In other words, the weather. End mm. quote. So he's like, look, mm-hmm. we were all out there. We knew what was going on. Just no one could have predicted how bad this was going to end for everything. Um, 
But Abernathy, the coroner, was not quite so kind. He criticized both the CYCA, the Yacht Club, and the Australian Bureau of Meteorology in his report. So specifically, he said that the Yacht Club, quote, abdicated its responsibility to manage the race, end quote, and that the race managers, quote, played the role of observers rather than managers, end quote. So in other words, he was like, you should have done more to make sure this was done right. Hold off the start. Maybe you knew there right. was bad weather. Come on. Um, of the Bureau of Meteorology, <coughs> excuse me, Abernathy noted that the Bureau should have, he was like, the Bureau should have picked up the phone and literally called the race organizers because the fact that this race was happening was complete public knowledge and they should have been like, hey, no, seriously, there's something bad brewing right where your your race is headed and you need to watch out. Um, so the end result was that they required the Bureau to add maximum wind gust speed and wave heights to their forecast. So to be much more explicit in the consequences of storms. And then also Abernathy strongly recommended um, safety measures to the, the CYCA. And I say strongly recommend because he said, quote, I make these recommendations bearing in mind that yachting clubs such as the CYCA are voluntary organizations that depend upon the willingness of their members to implement change. In this respect, such organizations are unlike statutory bodies, which can regulate with the force of law, end quote. So he's like, mm-hmm. look, I get you can't literally like go aboard every ship during the race and you don't even have the authority to do that. This is all a civilian organization and and you can't throw people in jail. So like I get it, but you need to tighten up your game here. So he I think the report I didn't put it in here, but I think it was released in December of 2000. So a couple years afterwards. Hmm. Um, the the full report is available online at that uh, website, Equipped to Survive, and it is. I mean, it's a it's an extensive report. Obviously, it's meant to be a thorough uh, investigation. So, the CYCA race director Phil Thompson resigned the day after the coroner's report came out. Makes sense. You got to throw somebody, you know, out there, right? Sure. Now, the year before that report came out, so in the interim, in 1999, the CYCA released their own report with recommendations of safety changes to the race. And as a result of the entire disaster, safety standards were increased greatly, not only for the Sydney to Hobart, but for yacht races worldwide. And these new regulations included requiring EPIRBs, which is emergency position indicating radio beacons. Mm. Uh, increased crew safety training, crew experience requirements, and age limitations. They are like, okay, here's the thing. No one under 18 is allowed to be on these boats. That makes sense. It does make total sense, right? The Churchill victim widows, Shirley Bannister, Denise Lawler, and Penny Dean, along with survivor John Gibson, filed multi-million dollar lawsuits against the CYCA, the Bureau of Meteorology, the Churchill Captain Richard Winning, and ProSaver, the manufacturer of the rubber life raft. They dropped the... I I didn't see what exactly happened. I'm guessing it was either settled or dropped with the the captain and with the raft manufacturer, but 
They did drop the suit against the Bureau and they settled with the CYCA for an undisclosed amount in 2005 because obviously legal systems sure. move pretty slowly. Um, in the t- 2018 Hobart, so 20 years later, Peter Dean, John Dean's son, so one of the victims from the Churchill, who was 15 years old when his dad died, made the decision to participate in the race on Mm. the 20th anniversary of the disaster in his father's memory. The vessel he sailed on was the 2017, the previous year's handicap winner, the Ichiban, which was renamed Winning Appliances (laughs) uh, for that year after the company owned by the ship's borrowers. So the the Ichiban was on loan uh, from Australian sailing president Matt Allen. The, The people who borrowed it was... The Winning family, uh, who owned Winning Appliances, and specifically, this was the same Winning family of Richard Winning, the Winston Churchill captain. Okay. Despite the previous lawsuit against Richard Winning and everything else that could understandably cause a major rift, the Dean family and the Winning family are apparently actually really close. Richard's... So, the captain of the Winston Churchill, Richard Winnings, his or winning his cousin's son john winning jr was the captain of winning appliances so the the ship that john dean's son sailed on and that's the crew Oh, okay so this was a year and a half ago sure um and from what i could tell uh peter dean was not himself a sailor he was basically just traveling participating yes exactly the yacht finished in the top 10 of handicap winners in fifth place with a time of three days, nine hours. Fortunately, without incident. Sure. So for those both directly and indirectly involved in the treacherous race, the disaster resulted in a variety of reactions to the race itself and to sailing in general. Jim Lawler's son, John, who had previously followed in his father's sailing, sailing footsteps, said, quote, To be perfectly frank, it made me stop sailing. I'm not that interested in participating in clubs that organize these races. I'm still sort of unsure why they acted in the way they did to one of their brothers and the family of their brothers. It took away my passion for it. Mm. End quote. Fucking totally understandable. Jeez. As for Ed Salter, the Midnight Ramblers captain and the winner of that year, right? Uh, He is now pushing 60 years old. And he said in 2018, quote, To my mind, races like the Sydney to Hobart are a chance to maintain the spirit of venture, uh, adventure, of having a go. I'll certainly keep doing it. It's part of my life. And I'm still dreaming of that second victory. Hmm. End quote. And that, my friends, was the story. That was a crazy story. Of the 1998 Sydney to Hobart yacht race. Yeah, I got it right here. Just a... I know, getting it ready. It was far away. Uh, um, also, Ed Salter is currently a self-employed accountant. So I oh, have there you some, go. something in common with Ed Salter, but he is still an avid sailor, which is not something I am. <laughs> but isn't that yeah, just that would be just terrifying? Horrifying? Yeah, I would never want to go through something like that. Hell mm-hmm. no. Hell no. I'm not even comfortable on, on boats in general. Like oh, I love I love, I love being out on a boat, but not in this shit. I mean, well, who would love being out in this shit? But I'm not. Right. I'm not even going to take the chance. I've never gone anywhere where this could happen. Right. You know, I've well, never. I've never gone boating on the ocean. Right. You know? Well, plus, not only just the ocean, but like an area of the ocean that is notorious. That is infamous. Yeah, infamous, 
And they knew it was going to be bad weather. Yeah. I mean, which apparently they didn't know it was going to be bad enough to end the way it did, but. Yeah, no thanks. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, where our, where our, where our little uh, camp is in Alexandria Bay, right on the border of Canada, mm-hmm. none, nothing like that is ever going to happen. Ever. Well, no, certainly not on a river. No. Hell no. <laughs> on, like, if it was on a Great Lake, shit can happen. Shit can, mm-hmm. but not... I don't even think to that degree. Maybe. Open ocean is another ball game. It's completely different. Yeah. I mean, there are... <laughs> there are shipwrecks literally all over the world oh, in the yeah. ocean. I mean... Oh, yeah. Ones we'll never find For or never even knew about. For a variety of reasons. Oh, yeah. From just, like... Um, incompetence to probably most common, I would sure think, would weather. Would be weather. Yeah. Yeah. Um, imagine, like, this happened in 1998. Imagine, like, sh- sailing way back when, when they didn't have, like, no. forecasts and I don't radars want, I and don't stuff. I don't even want to imagine living back then. I know, Much right? less going for, <laughs> let's go for a sail across the world. We, we might come back. Right. We might mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. I get, Probably not. I get, in theory, the draw of adventure sure. to that. I'm just not a very adventurous person, so I'm not too. I mean, it's not it's not <laughs> for everybody, but the uh, the species as a whole, absolutely, that's novelty and it's, adventure. It's in our it's in our DNA. Exploration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But wow, thanks, Stephen, for great suggesting story. that topic. Absolutely, that was, a, that was a great suggestion. That was a a very a very interesting story. It took a little bit of it took a little bit of digging, but there is a lot of very interesting information out there. Ooh. Uh, yeah, if you are interested in like all the accounts and stuff that um, the coroner's inquest has interviews from uh-huh. just about everybody involved, so. Yeah, no thanks. I'm yeah. going to leave those alone. Yeah. Well, it's a little funny, too, because the uh, they're transcripts of, you know, recordings of the interviews. Mm-hmm. And they're all, like, in scanned pages because it was still I'm just, sure. like, 99, 2000. They're in microfiche. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, it looks Like somebody little. took a cell phone picture of microfiche. <laughs> it's so funny how old 20 years ago looks like now. <laughs> Well, 20 years ago now is 2000. It's not even 1998. Yeah. Well, the report came out in right. 2000, but yeah. Yeah, computers were much different in 2000. And uh, mobile phones were still... Well, let's see, 2000... They were pretty small. They were smaller. Now. Yeah. Yeah. Were they still the little flip phones? Sure, yeah. Like the old with the antenna. Yeah, oh yeah. Phones. Yeah, because the, the brick phones didn't come out for couple years no, into the, the 2000s right the brick phones what do you mean the little like, ones like smartphones no like the nokia the bar phones you know chocolate bar phones i guess yeah i thought you meant the oh no no, no I, not the og brick yeah, that's ones what, that's what no, I the, my grandmother had one of those those are hilarious <laughs> those were really funny but anyway enough about brick phones it was a that was a really like that was almost Crazy five story. pages and yet this is panning out to be a shorter episode because we just didn't... I guess that maybe this is the episode to tell people to listen to if they don't like <laughs> the banter. Just tell them to start it at like 10 minutes or whatever and there won't be much. Yeah, this is... Uh, I will never be in a yacht race. Ever. 
No, but you know what? I do hope one day what? that we get to travel to Sydney because sure. from what I understand, it is absolutely gorgeous. And not just Sydney, but um, that is has always been on my bucket list because of the Sydney Harbor and always wanted to go to the Sydney Opera House ever since I saw it featured on Mario is Missing. <laughs> Pretty sure I mentioned that like six times before already it's on okay. this podcast, but Yeah. All right, well, that was the 1998 Sydney to Hobart Yacht Race. This has been another episode of All Bad Things. I'm David. I'm Rachel. And we'll see you next week.